I'm so, so excited to be with you. I remember when I was six years old, it was uh, summertime. My dad was a teacher, and so that meant that we were both on summer break. And uh, every day, well, at least it seemed like that to my six-year-old self, we would go to the Oaklawn Community Pool. And I loved going to the pool. I mean, I felt like I kind of grew up there. Uh, my parents actually said that I learned to swim before I even learned to walk. My dad uh, um, was a decent swimmer and, and, and diver, and so he kind of taught me like uh, how to swim a little bit and uh, how to even jump off the low dive. I think when I was five years old, I was actually diving off of the low dive. And, and this pool, it had like a, a kiddie pool that was awesome for uh, when I was really young. But then as I got older, they had this massive, it was uh, basically an Olympic-sized pool that went down one way, and then it cut an L-shape and went over this way, and that's where the diving boards were, the deep end. And I remember uh, being there as a five-year-old and jumping off the low dive and learning to dive, and, and uh, it was now the summer when I was six, and my dad said to me, he said, hey, Tori, because that's what my parents called me when I was growing up, Tori, uh, I think that you ought to jump off the high dive this year. He said, I think you're going to love it. Trust me. It's going to be so much fun. That's what he said to me. And so I said to my dad, I was like, well, uh, okay. I mean, he'd never steered me wrong in the past. So I said, well, would you go and tread water in the deep end and, and, and watch for me, okay, just in case I, I, I get into trouble? And he said, yeah, yeah, totally. I'll do that. And, and so I remember uh, taking the long walk uh, down the one side of the pool because you can't run, right? Lifeguard blows whistle. So I'm walking down, and I turn the corner, and I see the line to go up the high dive. And I'm easily the youngest and shortest kid that gets into the line. And my heart is starting to beat a little bit as I'm waiting for my turn. One by one, kids climb up the ladder, go off and jump into the pool. And it's finally my turn. And I can still, to this day, picture even feel what those metal railings were like as I began to climb to the top of that high dive. And this wasn't a platform, this was actually a springboard. And, and I got out onto the top of it, and I can remember when I was standing at the bottom, looking up, like it was scary, but it was nothing like when I was standing on top. I might as well have been on the Empire State Building at that point. I know the picture has some shadows. I am wearing a swimsuit, just so you know. <laughs> so there I am, standing at the top of this springboard, and I walked out to the edge. And my dad was treading water down there and very gently and kindly encouraging me, you got this, buddy. Trust me, it's going to be great. You can totally do it. Just count to three and jump. But at this point, my heart is jumping out of my chest, and I'm freaking out. I don't want to go. So I literally turned around to see if I could walk back down the ladder. And just as I turned around, I saw the next kid in line, his head popped up over the edge of the diving board, and he started saying, go, hey kid, go. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Joshua chapter 3. 
Joshua chapter three. If you need a Bible and uh, you're gonna wanna follow along in our story, if you don't have one, just raise your hand. One of the ushers coming down the rows will gladly give you a Bible. We're gonna be looking at Joshua chapter three and we're kicking off a brand new series that we're gonna be in for the next number of weeks. It's called The uh, Stronger and uh, I get the privilege of kicking it off. I'm actually teaching on a passage Joshua chapter three, that Brad preached on 11 months ago to the day. May 3rd of last year, Brad actually preached on this passage on a Sunday night at the Water's Edge Vision meeting. I had the privilege now of talking about it again. And Brad's message, along with the vision that Craig had laid on Craig's heart and the elders of this church's heart, was actually instrumental in my being on this stage today. Joshua chapter three. Now before we can jump into the story though, it's important that we remember what has taken place to get us here, all right? Israel had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. They cry out to God. God brings them Moses who goes to Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh, hey, God says to let his people go. Pharaoh says, no way. God says, well, then I will have to show Pharaoh that I am in control, that I am the one who is powerful. And so God winds up sending 10 plagues because Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. Finally, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh says, please leave, get out of here. Israel leads, Moses leads them out under God's authority and leadership. While they're leaving, Egypt even just loads them down with gold and silver and supplies that they're gonna need for, for the journey ahead. God doesn't take them down the quickest road back to the promised land where they had lived some 400 years earlier. God actually takes them down a different path because he knows that the people's hearts are still not uh, fully strong enough to, to withstand some of the things they were gonna experience. God had some things he wanted to teach them. So uh, they leave and after a little while, Pharaoh says, why did I let all of my slaves, all of my servants go? Like this, that was a really bad move. We need to go get them back. And so Pharaoh mounts up his army 600 chariots, they come out after Israel, and here's Israel now stuck at the Sea of Reeds. They can't go forward, and they can't go backwards, and the people start grumbling. Moses, why did you lead us out here? Why did God bring us out here just so we can die? Weren't there enough graves for us back in Egypt? And God says, Moses, I'm gonna show you and all of Israel my power today. And he says to Moses, stretch out your staff. Moses stretches out his staff. God sends a great wind, and he parts the Sea of Reeds a wall of water on each side, and Israel walks through. Pharaoh comes in after him. God allows the sea to come back down, destroying Pharaoh's army, and Israel is saved. God then leads them to Mount Sinai, where they get the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, where God actually meets them. Uh, the, the, says that the, the mountain was on fire with smoke, and uh, um, God's presence filled it, and they became God's nation at that point. God takes them as his own and says, you are now my nation. It be, began to be called the, the day of the assembly. After that point, God says, now I want you to go into the promised land. And so Moses begins to lead them towards it. They send 12 spies in. They check out the land for 40 days. They come back and they're bringing just massive amounts of grapes and figs and pomegranates. And they say that the land is flowing with milk and honey. Like this is phenomenal. Like the land is awesome. Two of the guys are like, God wants us to take the land. We can totally do this, and it's amazing. 
And then 10 of the spies say, no, 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 that, this is crazy. Like the land is amazing, but there's huge fortified cities and there's giants that live there. Like we can't do it. There's no way. They're going to destroy us. They're going to make our kids their slaves. And they refuse to obey God. You see, God had them on the diving board and was saying, jump, jump. You're going to love it. It's going to be amazing. I promise, trust me. And Israel walks back down the ladder. You're probably wondering what I did. I turned around to walk back down the ladder myself. But here was that kid with his head looking up, yelling at me to jump. And then I realized that another kid was actually right on his heels halfway up. And a third kid was actually on the bottom step. And now the entire line was yelling at me, jump, kid, jump. And there I stood at the edge of the diving board and my dad, who had been very gentle and encouraging up until this point, began to start saying, Tori, jump, I promise, it's gonna be great, come on, do it. And I did. And I jumped off into the water and I came back up and it was awesome. And I went back up, I think, 10 more times that day and I still to this day like to go and jump off of high dives. I do wear a little bit more bathing suit now than I did back then, but uh, I still enjoy it. You see, uh, that's a question that God had for Israel that he wanted them to jump, to trust him, to be tough. Like, be tough, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean? I mean to be tough. B-T-O-F, believe, obey, trust, follow. You're like, dude, that's so cheesy. It is cheesy, I know, it's super cheesy. It's all I could come up with, I was trying all week. That's what I got for you, B-T-O-F. That's what he wanted God, the, uh, God wanted the Israelites to do, to believe, to trust, to obey, to follow him, but they don't. So they wander around for 40 years, Moses finally brings them to a place where they can look over. Moses gets to see the promised land from a mountain. Moses dies, and Joshua, one of the two spies who trusted God, becomes the leader. God comes to Joshua and says, Joshua, now I want you to lead my people into the promised land. I want you to cross over the Jordan. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. That's about 3,000 feet. God wanted them to realize that he's holy and so he asked them to keep some distance, okay? Jump back with me to verse two. It says, after three days... The officers went throughout the camp. Now, now this is interesting because God brings them to the edge of the Jordan River. We're going to learn in verse 15 that this is in the springtime when the Jordan is at flood stage, okay? So he brings them down to the river, and there they stand for three days. Why did God have them there for three days? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, it was a big nation. There was some things that they probably had to get together, but I think there was more going on than that. I think God wanted them to experience what was about to happen, to really understand. And so for that to happen, not just for them, but for you, I need you all to stand right now. Go ahead, stand up. You're going to pretend now 
that you are at the edge of the Jordan River at flood stage in this video that I'm about to show you. This is Israel at flood stage right now. However, it's actually much worse 3,000 years ago. Now they divert a lot of the water away, and so what you're about to see is actually only a portion of what the Israelites would have experienced. Get a feel for what it must have felt like to stand at the Jordan River with this video. And God says, cross over. You may have a seat. What would that have felt like to be standing alongside the Jordan for three days? It would have been much worse than what we just saw. And God says, and now you're going to cross over. I mean, quite honestly, I would have been thinking, but God, why, why didn't you take us... Uh, a different way, or, or God, why didn't you just bring us here at a different time when, when the spring rains have not flooded the Jordan to flood stage? You see, God wanted them to recognize that they were not going to cross over on their own power. The only way they were gonna make it across that river is if they trusted God, if they followed God, if they believed in what God said, that when God stands up to lead, it's always in our best interest, and that it's not us that does the crossing, it's God who does it for us. He continues on in verse four and he says, then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. Uh, the NIV says been this way before. The ESV I think says you've never crossed this way or passed this way before. Uh, the word that's used here is the word bartem and it actually comes from uh, a Hebrew root word, a bar, which just simply means to cross over. The only reason why that's important to know is because that word cross over is used 21 times in chapter three and chapter four alone. It's a theme that God continues to bring up time and time again in this story because he wants us to understand that when we cross over, we are going from something previous to something new. That's what God has for us as a church. We're just beginning the stronger challenge. God is asking us to cross over with a new vision for a new time. And it means that we have to move from something previous to something else. We have to trust that when God desires to lead us, that following him is actually in our best interest. Continue on in verse five. He says, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. He says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow I will do amazing things among you. This idea of consecration is the idea of actually bathing 
or cleaning or changing your clothes or washing your clothes. It was intended to be kind of an outward sign that showed an inward reality, a spiritual cleansing that was to take place. Uh, We are at the point now where we are beginning the crossing over, right? We all voted, made a little check mark on a box, on a little piece of paper that said, we believe God is calling us to cross over. That's the easy part, right? Doesn't cost a whole lot to put a check mark in a box, does it? But what God says is we have to consecrate ourselves. You see, as a church, as we begin to cross over, I think one of the things God is going to be asking all of us to do is to change our clothes, take a bath. (laughs) Some of you maybe literally, but for most of you, okay, God is talking about something that he wants to do internally. God wants us to take some stock of our lives and say, God, are we actually doing what we say we're going to do? Do we actually believe and show it with our actions? I think that's one of the things that God's actually been saying to me as I've been preparing this message. Will you actually do what you say you're gonna do? Will you consecrate yourself? Will you look inside at your heart? And he says when they consecrate themselves, the reason is because God is going to do something amazing. God is going to do something amazing. Uh, Martin Woodstra, He's a commentator. He actually uh, wrote one of the commentaries that I was using when I was studying. And Dr. Woodster says that uh, the word miracles or amazing things, things to be astounded at, is literally something that God does that makes us drop our jaws in awe. We actually become fearful. Now, not in the sense of like, oh my goodness, I'm so scared, but in like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm experiencing this. I want to talk about that in just a minute. Hop over with me. To verse 6. It says, Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Uh, Brad actually told us why this was so significant back when he preached on this 11 months ago. Uh, the reason is because the Ark is actually the physical representation of God's presence. So when the writer of Joshua says that they took the Ark up, and went ahead of the people. What he's making an allusion to is the fact that God has stood up, that God has risen up, and that God has now walked to the head of the line, and God is saying, I'm standing up to go someplace. Will you follow? Will you jump? It was incredibly significant when it says they lifted the ark up and went ahead of the people. Continue reading verses 14 through 17. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, what you just saw in the video. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. The priests obey God. They step 
into the Jordan at the water's edge and God does this miraculous thing, right? This thing to be astounded at. And it says that then in verse 16, the people crossed over. When God rises up to lead us, we have to follow. Here's the kicker though. Wouldn't it be awesome if every time that God rose up to lead us someplace and we said, God, I will link up with you. We will hop on your back. We will go together that God would do something miraculous. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, that would certainly help my faith. Like God, if you would do something amazing, then that would be super cool. But here's the reality. God doesn't always do something miraculous, at least not immediately. But let me give you two things that I can promise you. If you will choose to trust, obey, believe and follow, there will be times in your life where you will see something amazing that you could never, ever imagine. I promise you. If you choose not to believe and trust and obey and follow, I can also promise you that you will never see God do something miraculous. You see, those things always happen when we trust God, when we link up with God, when we follow God. God did something in my own life just this past year that I would never have imagined, that I just last week marveled at when I realized what all he had done. God wants us to believe, to trust, to obey, and follow. Let me tell you a story about uh, a guy by the name of Jean-Francois Gravelet. You ever heard his name before? Probably not. Some of you, though, may have actually heard this story because Jean-Francois actually went by another name, the great Charles Blondin. Blondin was a funambulist, a tightrope walker. Born in 1824, the age of five, his dad takes him to a circus. While he's at the circus, he sees the tightrope walkers uh, doing their thing, and he gets super excited about it. Goes home, takes a couple of chairs from the dining room, takes a piece of rope and ties it between them and tries to start practicing. His dad, who was a gymnast, actually saw that his son had some uh, real talent, some possibilities. And so he enrolled him in a, in a gymnastics acrobatic school. And uh, by the age of six, little Jean-Francois actually does his very first public performance. Tragically, at the age of nine, his dad passes away. His dad had always nicknamed him Blondin because he had these bright blue eyes and this blonde shock of hair on his head. So at the age of nine, he actually starts going by his stage name, Charles Blondin. All throughout his teens and 20s, he tours all of Europe. In his mid-20s, uh, he actually takes a gig in the United States, comes over to the States and has been touring in the United States for eight years. He's becoming internationally known. He's by far the greatest tightrope walker of his time, if not of all time. And while he's there at the age of 35 in the U.S., he goes up to Niagara Falls because he's supposed to do a show up there. While he's there, he visits the falls and he becomes completely enamored with the Niagara Falls Gorge. And so he decides at that moment he's going to walk a tightrope across the gorge. He goes to the uh, paper, the Niagara Falls Gazette. He tells them what he's going to do, and they actually think he's joking at first. They thought it was like some uh, 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 st marketing stint to try to get more people to come to a show. 
When they realize that he's serious, though, then they think he's just flat out crazy. Like they really expected he's going to die. Um, but crazy stories sell newspapers. So they actually start running stories about the fact that he's going to walk a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. Uh, papers all over the nation start picking this up. In fact, the New York Times uh, said this about Blondin, that he was a fool who ought to be arrested, quote unquote. The Smithsonian said this about the summer of 1859. There were hundreds of people examining the rope, reported one witness, and with scarcely an exception, they all declared the inability of Mr. Blondin to perform the feat, the incapacity of the rope to sustain him, and that he deserved to be dashed to atoms for his desperate foolhardiness. Children clung to their mother's legs, women peeked from behind their parasols, several onlookers fainted. The rope was actually 1,200 feet long, made of hemp, was about two to two and a half inches thick. It started at 160 feet on one side and went up to 270 feet on the other side. They took guy wires to tie to the rope so that it wouldn't sway in the wind. However, there was a spot of about 50 feet right in the middle that they could not get a guy wire attached to. And so that actually allowed the rope to sag some 60 feet. It was a pretty steep decline and an even steeper incline. That day, over 10,000 people came to see Monsieur Blondin fall to his death. That's what everybody expected would happen. In fact, they were taking bets, uh, wagers all over the place, both on the U.S. side and the Canadian side, and all the good money was on the fact that he would not make it. He started off to people's gasps, got about a third of the way there, and then shocked everyone by sitting down on the rope. Everyone assumed that he was in trouble, that he was probably just moments away from falling. Mr. Blondin pulled a little bottle from the back, unscrewed the cap, took a little drink, screwed it back on, put it back, stood up, and then slowly made his way across the rope. It took him 17 minutes. You see, Mr. Blondin knew how to work a crowd. He had said to his close friends that he thought that this rope walk was going to be a piece of cake. He wasn't worried about it at all, but he wanted everybody else to think that he was worried about it, so he took 17 minutes to get across. Just before he crossed the very first time, though, while he was on the U.S. side, he said to everyone standing there, is there anyone that would like a free passage to Canada? You are welcome to climb aboard my back, to which everyone laughed, thought he was crazy and he was going to die and they were not going to be a part of it. So after he gets to the Canadian side, he actually turns around and they said he basically ran back across. Less than seven minutes, he made it the second time back. The place went nuts. He began to do more and more crazy tricks throughout that summer. More and more people came to see him. One time he pushed a wheelbarrow across. Another time he literally put on a gunny sack that went down to his knees. So he was blindfolded, walked himself across. One time he got out into the middle, turned around and walked backwards the rest of the way. One time he brought out a chair and table and set it on the high wire, sitting down at the chair to enjoy a glass to drink and then went on from there. I mean, the man was crazy. He did stilts one time, but the craziest, most daring thing that he ever did happened August the 17th, 1859, with 25,000 people there to watch. He had convinced 
his manager, Harry Colcord, to walk across with him on his back. Now, uh, Blondin was not a big dude. Blondin weighed uh, about 140 pounds, five foot five inches tall. Colcord was a little bit taller, but weighed the same amount, 140 pounds. He had devised this little strap thing that Colcord could get his legs into and then put his arms around his shoulders. People everywhere thought they were both going to die. It was big news all around the nation, even around the world. And as he walked out onto the tightrope, he got about halfway there, and Blondin seemed to have bit off a little bit more than he could chew. Halfway there, he literally had to ask Colcord to get his legs out of the sling and balance himself while holding on to Blondin's back while Blondin got some rest for his legs. He somehow was able to get Colcord back onto his back, walked three quarters of the way over and needed to take a short rest again where he put one of his legs on the main rope and then put his other leg on one of the guy wires that was standing or that was uh, tied off right there so he could get a little bit of a break. When he put some weight on the guy wire, it snapped. The entire rope swayed and Blondin had Colcord on his back with one foot on the rope and was somehow able to steady himself and made it across. The place went nuts. Everyone thought they were both going to fall to their death. Just before they first got onto the wire, look at the quote of what Blondin said to Colcord. You can find this in the Smithsonian. He said this, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord, you are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. This is exactly what God is asking of Israel. God comes to Israel and says, I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. I promise to be with you. I promise to take you into the land. I promise to protect you. He said, will you follow me? Will you trust me? Will you believe that when I lead you someplace, it's always for your benefit? It's always in your best interest. You see, God wanted Israel to trust him so deeply that wherever he went, they would go. Whatever he thought, they would think. Whatever he said, they would say. Whatever he did, they would do. Whatever he asked of them, they would obey. And that's exactly what it means to live the Christian life, isn't it? <laughs> We put off our old self and take on the new self of Christ. The point of following Jesus is to become like Jesus, not just to believe something. Way too often we get stuck wanting to simply believe something. Well, God, I believe what the Bible says, and God, I will give mental assent to the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But that's not the kind of belief that the Bible talks about. The kind of belief that the Bible talks about is not just something that sits up here in our heads. It's something that permeates our entire world, our entire body, everything that we do. It's what God wanted for Israel, and it's what God wants for us as well. 
Friends, we're crossing our own Jordan right now. That's what the Stronger Challenge is all about. It's a new day, a new vision. God is having us cross over from what was previous to what he has for us next. There are always crossings over. Life is full of crossings. Crossing the Jordan was one thing, one way that Israel had to trust God, to believe in God. God wants us to become a family of churches in this region and around the world. He wants us to stay stronger at home, to get stronger at home, to continue to be stronger at home. Why? Because we have to be if we're going to continue to be stronger away for decades to come. This vision is why I wound up at Central. Uh, You see, I had had a conversation with Craig uh, a little over a year ago now. Uh, Brad actually called me up and he said, Torin, um, would you come and meet with uh, Craig and I? Now, at the time, I didn't have a job. I knew that God had called me to, to lead and to teach. God had affirmed that through a number of different people in a number of different places. And I was saying to God, God, okay, that's cool and all. Like, that's great, but uh, I kind of need a place to do that. God, you need to call me someplace. And, and it'd be great if that place also came with a paycheck because, God, I've got all these responsibilities. Four kids and, and a wife. And, and I'll be honest, I was... I was worried. And God said, Torn, I've put a call in your life. Will you trust me? I'm like, God, I want to. I really do. Help me. So I get this call from Brad, and he's like, hey, would you come and have a conversation with us? I'm like, sure, that sounds, that sounds cool. Like, uh, I could use a job. <laughs> uh, plus, I, I knew I was going to meet Craig, and I hadn't met him yet. And plus, I knew they were probably going to pay for my lunch. So I'm like, sweet, I'm going to get to meet the new senior pastor of Central and get a free lunch out of it. And I didn't think that God was calling me necessarily at the time to Central. And I knew a little bit about the position. It was going to be the pastor of discipleship. And I love discipleship, like mad love for this. Like it's the thing that my heart beats for. But I knew the calling that God had placed in my life was to teach and was to lead a community. So I went and had lunch with them and I wound up finding myself really liking I'd known Brad for a while at that point, and I found myself really liking Craig and as he talked about kind of the vision and things, and, but I knew what God had placed on my life, and so uh, there I was now without a job, and so we're going through this process with Central, and they get to kind of the end of the process. I think there was three or four final candidates, and I knew that I was one of them, and, and God said, will you trust me? Yeah, I know you really want to take this job because it's going to give you a place that you can work, do something that you enjoy. You're going to get a paycheck. You're going to be able to keep the house that you bought a year and a half ago. You're going to be able to keep your kids in schools that you have fallen in love with, with the friends that are actually uh, uh, really influential in their lives. And like, that's a really great thing. And so I'm like, God, that's, you know, I want to Lord. And God said, yeah, but Torn, will you trust me? You know what I've placed on your life. And so finally, after a few months, knowing that it was that week, they were going to have to have these conversations. I called Brad up and I said, dude, Uh, At this point, I had actually had the privilege of teaching at Central twice at that point. I said, dude, I've fallen in love. My wife and I have fallen in love with Central. And and you know that I love you, and I love the team, and I'd love to say yes, that God was calling us to this position. But Brad, I know the calling that God's placed on my life, and so I need to tell you that I'm going to pull my name from from the hat. So when you guys go this afternoon to have your meetings and talk about the different candidates, you'll know that uh, I'm not going to be one of them now. 
And I hung up that phone and I was on my way to Grand Rapids at the time and I sat there saying, God, what are you doing? Uh, The next day, I had planned to call Craig and tell him myself. Uh, My car, though, uh, had some issues and I had to bring it into the shop. Woohoo, awesome, another bill to pay without a job, it's fantastic. So I'm there at the auto shop and I get this phone call and I don't recognize the number and I pick it up and this guy starts talking to me and he says that his name's Craig, but it just doesn't dawn on me. I'm like, who is this weirdo with this weird accent? All of a sudden it dawns on me, this is Craig Reese from Central Wesley. I'm like, hi Craig, how are you? And I start trying to explain myself. Dude, I I love Central and I love the team, but I know the calling God's placed on my life. And he says to me, "Uh, Torn, we we all recognize that too. We all have seen that And, and we would affirm it. And he says, Torn, what if this was the position. And he says, did you listen to our vision series that we had four days ago? The Water's Edge vision. I said, I haven't heard it yet. And he says, well, let me tell you what it's about. He says, we believe God's calling us to become a family of churches in this region and around the world. He said, would you come and help us for a year and a half, two years, do some things within the discipleship ministry? And then would you be the first guy that we send out to plant? I, I, I wanted to tell him yes right then. <laughs> I was like, uh, like, this is exactly what I've been asking God for. Like, this is exactly what I wanted. And, and, and I said, dude, I want to say yes right now, but I probably need to talk to my wife and even more so, I probably need to ask God to make sure that he's cool. And he's like, that's totally fine. Take the weekend. I went home. I told my wife that afternoon. We'd been having a little fight. We hadn't talked in like six hours. <laughs> now I got to tell her, I think God just revealed our next place. And we made up and said, we're sorry. Mostly me, because I'm sure I was the reason. And I told her what was going on and she, she says, let's say yes now. <laughs> that was her words. And I'm like, hey baby, we probably ought to pray about it. So we did, we prayed about it over the weekend. I actually laid out a couple of fleets. I said, God, if you're allowing us to choose this because you know this is what I want, then God do this and this and God did them. And I came back on Monday and I called Craig and I said, Craig, we're in. This is what we want. We're so excited. Now here's the crazy part. I had four months where I didn't have a job. Not a, not a steady income. And I didn't know how God was going to take care of us. I was really worried. My bank account at the end of that four months was slightly more than it was at the beginning of that four months. I don't even know how to explain that. Not not only that, but I just did my taxes this past year. And I realized God had allowed us to be more generous last year than Brenda and I have been in the last 16 years of our marriage. I don't even know how that happened either. All I know is that when I said to God, God, I will follow you, even though it looks crazy, even though it looks scary, even though I don't think I can do it on my own, God says, if you'll trust, if you'll trust me, if you will just link up with me, if you'll get on my back, you're going to see some crazy, amazing things. And friends, I think that's exactly what God is asking of us as a church. And it can't just be this trust, this belief that sits up here. Right? It's easy to check a box and say, we believe that the stronger challenge is what God is calling us to. It's way different when God starts saying, okay, now get out your checkbook. Right? It's easy to check a box. It's way different when God comes to you and says, uh, I want you to sell your house, quit your job, and move your family to go with Torin and Jordan where I'm calling them to plant this church campus. It's easy to check a box and say, yes, God, I'm willing to cross over until God comes and says, now I want you to take your business and I want you to divide it in half and I want you to open up a new franchise of that 
over in Cambodia or Jakarta. But friends, that's, that's when real life actually begins to happen. I'd like to leave you with one final image. You see, friends, all too often, the seat that I like to be in This one right here. I like to be sitting right here, deciding how fast I'm going, when to hit the brakes, what turns I want to make. But the Christian life is not about sitting on the motorcycle. You see, the Christian life is about sitting in the sidecar. I hate the seat. <laughs> and yet this is the very seat that God wants us to be in. You see, a sidecar doesn't power itself. The motorcycle powers the sidecar. Sidecar doesn't decide where it's going to go. The motorcycle decides where the sidecar is going to go. The sidecar is in real trouble if it ever disconnects from the motorcycle. You see, friends, God wants us to cross over. But it's not on our timetable where we would like it. It's not in the way that we get to choose and decide. God wants us to cross over when he rises up and begins to walk. And we get on his back we link up with his motorcycle and we say, Jesus, I want to be along for the ride with you. I have no idea what crossing over is going to mean for you in this next season. I'm super excited and super scared for what it means for me and my family. But there's no other place that I would rather be. Do you know why? Because I believe that when God rises up to lead me, it's always in my best interest. Look at this final slide. God leads his people, and those that follow are always the beneficiaries of his leadership. Always. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we wanna be people who sit in the sidecar God, I will admit way too often I try to jump out or I try to jump on your seat or I try to make the sidecar go on my own. But God, I want to be, we want to be people who cross over because you are leading us. God, this could mean so many different things for each of us. But God, we believe that you only lead us to places that are in our best interest. It doesn't mean, God, I know, it doesn't mean that things are easy. In fact, quite honestly, it's often the opposite. But God, it's often through some of the most difficult things that we walk through, the biggest sacrifices we make, that we see you in such beautiful and miraculous ways that we're left in awe. And God, I don't want to miss out on whatever journey you have for me. 
God, we don't want to miss out on the journey you have for us as a church. So God, would you help us, please help us to link up with you. To trust that you're about to take us on an amazing adventure where we're going to see and experience unbelievable things as we trust and believe, as we obey and follow. We love you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your beautiful and powerful, your risen name we pray. Amen. My friends, the sidecar is scary, but there is no better place to be. We are super excited that you came out. We know it's spring break. We've got an awesome series prepared for you as we head forward, as we begin talking more and more about this stronger challenge. Thanks for being here. Have a fantastic rest of your week and enjoy the stinking snow. (laughs) Thanks guys, we'll see you next week.